You're listening to the Reef and Focus podcast, produced by the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. We have more observations on the reef, uh, under the water, from the air, uh, from from satellite monitoring than we've ever had. And that is just a huge amount of information to let us know what's actually happening in near real time. Hello everyone, welcome to episode six of the Reef in Focus podcast, where we discuss all things happening on the Great Barrier Reef. And joining us today is a man who's heavily involved in reef health preparations, our General Manager of Marine Park Operations, Richard Quincy. G'day, Richard. G'day, how are you going? Very well, thank you. Now, as I said, we're going to talk all things reef health, summer prep, all that sort of stuff. But can we clarify a few rumours before we start? I'm told from a very reliable source that you have the world's best chilli mud crab recipe, is that correct? I, I have a chilli mud crab recipe that's pretty good. I well, got it from first. a colleague in um, the Reef Authority. Now, I've improved on it, and the secret to the world's best chilli mud crab is catching the world's best mud crabs. There you go. And that's where you've got to start. All right. <laughs> right. Well, we'll discuss this yes. more after the podcast. Um, as I said, reef health is top of our agenda today and obviously over summer it's the most crucial or one of the most critical periods on the reef health calendar and we'll take a bit of a deep dive into that a little bit later on but as with all our guests we like to know where you're from what you do um, and how you became uh, a reef authority uh, general manager so your background's a little bit different you started out with QPWS can you tell us a bit about that? I started out with the Queensland Parks and Wildlife Service um, way back uh, in in the mid 90s actually and uh, grew up in Brisbane uh, spent a lot of time visiting North Queensland um, and as part of my university uh, degree I spent six months in Townsville uh, working uh, with Queensland Parks and Wildlife Service in a in a planning role and just fell in love with the north and uh, went back to Brisbane for a few years but have been up in North Queensland ever since um, I I, I'm now a Cowboys follower, um, have family in, in Townsville, um, and North Queensland's now my home. So 12 months on Gary or Fraser Island wasn't enough to keep you away? No, it wasn't enough to keep me away. Um, it's, a, it's a very idyllic place to spend 12 months in a tent on the beach, um, but I thought I'd better get on and find a job and came back up to North Queensland, up to Cardwell and, and then back to Townsville um, and always in a Queensland Parks and Wildlife Marine uh, Island protected area role before I moved across to the authority. So that was your sort of area of expertise to start with more uh, conservation and, and permits and planning, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, a broad um, um, terrestrial and marine protected area management role and a wildlife management role. And I've always, um, you know, been interested in the planning and the policy and the you know the management of activities but um, quickly decided that you know an operational role actually out in the marine park on islands was very attractive and I've pursued um, that for all of my career and I've been very lucky that those opportunities have been there for me. So was there a pivotal time or was it um, pretty much um, I guess ingrained in your work that you were out um, looking at different parts of the reef, was there a specific time that you sort of fell in love with the Great Barrier Reef and thought, this is you know, the best job in the world, this is where I'm gonna spend my career? 
Yeah, I, I think it actually does go back to my holidays in, in far north Queensland. And, and interestingly, that wasn't so much out on the coral reefs, but in, you know, the inshore areas. The, the reef is a very diverse place and we have the, the outer barrier and the reefs that are spectacular. But our inshore areas, seagrass beds, mangroves, some of the, you know, the world's most spectacular scenery in places like the Hinchinbrook Channel um, is where I fell in love with North Queensland um, and you know, and and wanted to work in a place that, you know, was so, you know, so important and so picturesque as well. And I suppose it gives you a good grounding working for, um, like some of our other colleagues within the Reef Authority, working for QPWS and then coming across, you have that sort of breadth of knowledge across both areas, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the, pe- the thing that, that people, you know, understand is how big the Great Barrier Reef is, but to do a proper job of managing that, it's um, many partners involved in delivering, you know, a whole heap of activity. So, you know, it's not just one entity that can do the job across the reef. It involves all of our um, government partners, Commonwealth and state, uh, traditional owners, our Indigenous range of programs, uh, and the people that use the reef, tourism operators, fishers, uh, all contribute to how we are stewards of the reef. So can you break that down a little bit further? You're one of our uh, senior managers as GM of Marine Park Operations. So that would take in uh, compliance, um, joint field management, all that sort of thing. Can you give us a, a rundown of, of the departments that you oversee? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really, you know, broad portfolio. So we, we, we have a, an ability in the marine park to regulate how uses happen. There's a whole heap of activities that, have, that are as of right, you know, mostly going boating, fishing, snorkeling, doing things that don't involve take or manipulation of the environment. Uh, but for those other things that do, commercial activities, regulating uh, tourism activities, so we maintain world-class standards, uh, we run a permission system. So that's a very big part of those people that need a permission to do something um, uh, need to come to the authority and seek that permission to make sure they do the right thing with minimal impact. Um, then that leads on to our field programs and having a presence out in the marine park. Uh, we are really lucky in uh, the Great Barrier Reef to have a world-class uh, program that is not just a park on paper, but is actually a presence out across the whole entire 2,300 kilometres of the reef and 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 in all areas. So that, that partnership is with Queensland Parks and Wildlife Service to deliver day-round presence in the marine park. Uh, so that's a really big part of what we do in that. We look at things like delivering conservation actions in the water and on islands. Yep. Uh, we look at checking for change, being the general general pack practitioners of the reef, not necessarily the specialist scientists, but we're there more than anyone else um, in many, many of the remote locations. So doing those observations, yeah. responding to incidents, making sure that there's infrastructure so people can come and use the reef, uh, but do it without leaving a trace. And then there's the really key element of compliance. Uh, one of our key roles is to uphold the rules of the zoning plan and make sure that the zoning plan benefits uh, the marine park like it's intended to. Yeah, and we're seeing that, aren't we, at the moment? Like um, we're seeing those benefits 
in action in real time, aren't we? Absolutely. And and there's a lot of science that shows that our no-take zones, our green zones are healthier and have uh, larger and more fish in them. But I always say anyone that is in doubt of that, uh, particularly fishers, put your fishing rods away for a trip and go and jump in in a, in a green zone that's protected from take and you will see the difference for yourself. So to expand on that a little bit further, summer is... Um, probably a more crucial time on our reef health calendar, even though we're monitoring the reef all year round. Um, this is when we start to see some possible impacts. Can you give us, a, I guess, a broad rundown or a prediction, if you like, um, how is the reef looking heading into this summer? Yeah, the reef is looking great heading into this summer. We have had um, disturbances in the past from both cyclones and thermal uh, stress events causing coral bleaching, and they're um, things that we've seen more frequently over the past years. So we've got to keep our eye to those as we understand the real key drivers of a, a global temperature increase. Uh, but whether um, summer to summer in a local and regional context is really important. So the reef is looking good in terms of uh, it's recovered from some of those disturbances, given it's had a period of time to do so. Yep. It doesn't mean that they haven't impacted the reef. What it does show is that we still manage a very resilient reef in the Great Barrier Reef. And how do you, um, as we said, monitor it all year round? What are some of the things that we're looking at? Are we talking aerial surveys, in water um, activities, etc.? Yeah, uh, like we, we're very lucky as well to have a really strong long-term science program in the reef. So partners like the Australian Institute of Marine Science, uh, some of the universities along the the Queensland coast contribute to a really deep and you know long-term history of science knowledge. But then there's a cut down where everyone from our rangers and field programs through to our Crownathorn starfish control program and our tourism and traditional owner partners are out there every day gathering information and uh, sending that back uh, to the reef authority so that we can collate the best view across the whole reef at any time. And so for someone who's not, I guess, in the know as much as yourself around monitoring the reef, when we do see potential impacts from weather events that could have an effect on the reef, what's our process? When are we um, back in the water, for example, to, to have a look and see what's happening? Yeah, well, well uh, we're, we're in the water um, nearly continually. Now, that's not every day across all of the reef, but when we put that picture together, we have enough observation, observations from enough key areas to understand what's happening with the reef, particularly when we put that with things like um, temperature sensing from satellites and understanding, you know, uh, wave prediction and uh, wind models from cyclones. So it's a real combination of modelling combined with actual observations to give us an understanding of what's happening near real time on the reef. And that's right across the marine park, isn't it? So yeah. from southern GBR all the way up to sort of the Torres Strait. That's right. It's it's across it's across the whole you know inshore coastal inshore and offshore areas, and then all the way north and south. And and we do work closely with some of our Torres Strait partners um, because you know the reef goes all the way to the to Papua New Guinea nearly in in terms of a barrier. It's um, really remarkable. So looking at current weather conditions, Australia is currently experiencing an El Nino weather event. What does that mean? I guess in 
simplified terms and how does that affect the Great Barrier Reef? Yeah, I, I think it's um, an interesting thing to talk about it right now. Uh, El Nino usually means drier and warmer conditions along the east coast of Australia. Um, however, what we're seeing right at the moment in North Queensland is the um, the ex tropical cyclone jasper and the rain that it um, has produced in some of our far northern areas uh, is anything but, you know, drier for some of those areas. But I, I think that really actually goes to show that it's regional and local weather patterns on the reef, as well as the longer term climate drivers that we need to have a handle on to understand what's happening. It's not just one or the other. Yeah. Okay. So it's... Um we look at modelling, obviously, but it's not an exact science. There's still anomalies and that sort of thing along well, the way. Well, there's variability in where some of the global changes um, show up in terms of increased temperatures or, you know, increased um, wet, severe weather activity. Um, yeah, and, and the reef is a really, really big place. So we're talking about greater than 2,300 kilometres of coast. Uh, and over that area, there's going to be variability. Yeah. And that means also what we see in the reef is uh, the same variability in in health and condition of the reef. Um, so we often hear about an impact on the reef. However, that may be in a fairly small area of the reef and it may not affect all of the reefs or habitats even in that area the same way. So like you were saying before, that's why it's critical that uh, we're working in partnership with so many other reef users, um, traditional owners, other government agencies, etc. to to monitor such a, a broad space? Yeah, it, it's critical to work with uh, a broad range of partners um, in managing the reef, but but also to recognise the, that uses across the reef happen uh, differently as well. Um, you know, there's, there's a really vibrant tourism industry that relies on the reef, and uh, I feel for some of the people in the north that have been impacted at the moment by Tropical Cyclone Jasper, um, but there are other locations along the reef that are still thriving at the same time uh, that some of those impacts are being felt. Yeah, okay. And we we always aim to try and support in our management those industries getting back to their normal operations as quickly as they can, uh, and we fully expect that that'll happen this time around as well. You mentioned before that it's a year-round plan to monitor the reef, but during summer when um, the chances of incidents or impact are a little bit higher, how do we prepare for the warmer months on the Great Barrier Reef? Yeah, we prepare for the warmer months by understanding the, the longer term climate predictions and weather predictions, and particularly relying on the Bureau of Meteorology um, as a really key partner within the Australian government to, to understand what that's likely to bring us. And then keeping a close eye on the weather. Uh, in a real sense, we make sure that we've uh, got all of our partners on board and understand where they're actually going to be out in the marine park. What sort of activity are they going to do? How much are they going to be in the water? What are they looking at? And a really key part of that is making sure we can cover any of the gaps that might exist. We have more observations on the reef, uh, under the water, from the air, uh, from from satellite monitoring than we've ever had. And that is just a huge amount of information to let us know what's actually happening in near real time. Now, when I say in near real time, that that is, um, it's a really big place and we've got to keep remembering that. 
Could you elaborate on that a little bit more? What are some of the the gaps that you were talking about, just so we understand specifically um, what the authority looks for in the warmer months? Yeah, so so some of the the gaps are ge- geographical coverage. Um, we've got some really remote places. If you go to the Swains offshore, uh, the the Capricorn area, you're more than a hundred kilometres to sea before you uh, hit the main hard barrier reef. And the same up in the north, it's a couple of days steam to get to rem- really remote locations. Um, some of the, the challenges for us um, up in the inshore areas um, where the water's a bit murkier, uh, we have real issues with um, crocodiles and sharks in terms of hopping in the water. So yeah. trying to look at alternative technologies to understand how we get those observations and informations are a really real consideration. Um, and in the, in the gaps, we tend to find that People are really happy to help us fill them in if they know how to help. Uh, we have a, an eye on the reef app that people, anyone, if they hop in the water, have an observation, can easily log on to the eye on the reef app, submit the data, they can add a photo to it if they wish, they can add a sighting of something you know, unique or, or unusual, and we will get that through and use that information. So following on from that, what is the likelihood that we'll start to see some of these uh, marine heat stress indicators, if you like? Yeah, so, so, so if we do see thermal stress, we'll pick it up first from remote sensing from satellites, understanding the water temperature. And we've got a really good understanding of the patterns of heat stress and when we start to see corals bleach. Uh, when we see that, it's um, uh, usually a progression over weeks. It's not an instant thing. So we need to understand how heat stress builds up. At a particular point in time, we'll first likely jump in an aircraft and do a broad scale survey of the reef and understand the the distribution of bleaching. As I mentioned with things like cyclone and other weather events, that is often patchy. Um, When we understand where we're seeing bleaching show up in the surface waters, the top couple of metres, the next step is to actually get in the water and understand how deep it is, what colonies are affected and to what extent. It's important to remember as well that when corals bleach, that does not mean that corals are dead. Uh, There are certain outcomes that happen depending on the level of heat stress. Corals can recover their their symbiont algae, their zoosanthellae, and and return to, to health. However, if health stress does persist, there may be a level of mortality. We've had heat stress events where corals have bleached and and most have recovered. We've had other heat stress events where there's been significant mortality. Understanding it depending on the event uh, is really important. So so understanding the long-term outcome of a coral bleaching event or a cyclone is where our long-term science programs come in, our links to the Australian Institute of Marine Science and other long-term monitoring programs that are the place that don't just look at one single event but give us the trend of what's happening with corals on the reef over a long period of time. And from all of that information, you said before we've got more info now, the latest marine science, more than we've ever had. When you tie that all together, it must give us, I guess, a fairly good idea with the variables that you spoke about to predict uh, if there's going to be an impact on the reef. So can we predict if there's going to be an incident of coral bleaching or something like that? Um, The answer to that is no, not a long way out. 
you know, we, we get the climate driver information coming through, but it isn't until you see events like we've seen with Cyclone Jasper that you understand the variability in things like path and extent and duration of, of those. So um, it firms up as we move into summer and we start to understand it, but it, but the modelling for long-term um, is still, you know, uh, not precise for the locations along the reef that you might see uh, matters happening. What what I will say is that what what we should expect is that we are going to see uh, thermal stress events on the reef given the global temperature increases um, and we need to be aware to those being possible uh, every summer. So the key is, I guess... To use the old cliche, it's to be alert but not alarmed. Absolutely, and to be prepared uh, to to understand and communicate what we're seeing accurately on the reef and what the what the long term implications are for that. Uh, the reef authorities uh, has a very clear position that the best thing everyone can do is contribute to reducing uh, global emissions from greenhouse gases. Uh, it is a climate change threat to the reef that we need to take seriously, uh, but. We need to make sure that we've got the best management in place in the marine park uh, as well, because it's not about doing one thing, it's about doing many things. So to expand on that a little bit further, the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park is recognised as one of the best managed in the world. What are some of these management actions that we're talking about to protect the reef? Yeah, so fundamentally understanding how people use the marine park and follow the rules is really important. Our zoning plan, we've got a Crownathorn starfish control program to protect coral at key sites. Uh, how we manage the catchment as a community and use the catchment, making sure water quality that goes into the reef is as good as it can be. So for someone with your breadth of experience um, coming from a QBWS background over to the Reef Authority and now GM of Marine Park Operations. What does the future hold? How do we continue this moving forward? When I started in marine protected area management, it was a large focus about just removing the direct human pressures and the reef would look after itself. And I think we've moved on in natural systems management from that. We're going to need to look at how we intervene, how we how we restore or repair or help a system be as resilient as, as it can be. And our Cranathorn Starfish Control Program is one uh, example of that. Uh, we've done Cranathorn Starfish Control at really small scales at important tourism sites, but taking that to the next level for the program we have now is essential for future reef management. And it's going to need to, we're going to need to challenge some of those paradigms of management to, to move into a new space uh, where, where other things to help the reef maintain resilience are possible. So it's really a combination of those broad scale um, global initiatives, if you like, to the smaller scalable operations like Crown of Thorns removal. Absolutely. And, it, and it's not just one, it's more. And, and that's one of the unfortunate bits about where we are. And, and even just increasing pressure and access to the marine park as roads up to Cape York become, you know, more accessible and easier. We're going to have to understand how we want to manage use uh, across the reef, but also what management tools we're willing to pull out and try and deploy. So tying that all together with all the latest science that we have and all the actions of our 
partners across the Great Barrier Reef. How does the average user help to protect the reef when they're out enjoying the sunshine this summer? I think we we need to start with, as I said, understanding uh, your role in reducing global emissions. Uh, it's the biggest threat to the reef and we can't overlook that. What we then want people to do is actually go and use the reef and, you know, enjoy it. I, I think the best thing they could do is download the Eye on the Reef app or go and find a, a zoning plan on our website, understand the rules, particularly with the Eye on the Reef app, report what you see. It's all valuable information and we use it. I know you're a very busy man, mate, and I want to get that mud crab recipe off you before you go. Yes, so thank you very absolutely. much for your time. We really appreciate and it. And you'll have to come out and catch a crab with me as well. Done. Please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform, leave us a rating or review, and visit our website, reefauthority.gov.au, for more Great Barrier Reef content.